Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And as I mentioned, this is going to be the, the scene where Jesus is betrayed, or the plans are laid for betrayal by Judas. Now, one of the first lines of a drama I ever memorized was uh, were the words of, of Julius Caesar to his friend Brutus when he was assassinated by the, the Roman senators in 44 B.C. Caesar, Julius Caesar, is one of the most significant figures in history. The month of July is named after Julius Caesar. And Caesar had recently uh, just declared himself to be the dictator perpetuo, meaning that he was the dictator in perpetuity and thinking the republic would never be recovered if something wasn't done about about Caesar. Several powerful men hatched this plot and and after a very well calculated scheme about 60 men fell upon Caesar and stabbed him 23 times. And Caesar's last words were kai su technon in, in Greek. You too, child. And then Shakespeare put that English, English phrase into Latin. Et tu brute. You too, Brutus. Brutus, one of the, the men that stabbed him, was one of Caesar's close friends, or I guess he thought he was one of his close friends. And you, you come to the final stretch in the Gospel of Mark and you, you see the arrangements, or we see the arrangements for the, the single greatest act of betrayal ever, greater than, than the, the betrayal of Julius Caesar, because this was no ordinary man, this is the betrayal of the Son of God. Being attacked hurts, but there's something about an act of betrayal. If you've ever been stabbed in the back, as they say, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Caesar's last words expressed not the, the, the agony of dying, but the agony of the treachery. Think about it, the last words that he utters. The last words that come out of his mouth is about a familiar friend actually betraying him. And in Jesus' case, both must take place, betrayal and also death. And there are three segments in the, the last part of the Gospel of Mark. There's the preparation for the cross, and that's where we're at. That's in Mark 14. Then comes the crucifixion, and then the triumph. Chapter 15 and 16, and we'll get there. But we're on the on-ramp, if you will, to the preparation section, about halfway through, and it's going to lead us to the cross. And Mark is identifying all of the human characters that play a part in preparing for the cross of Christ. And we have begun working through this list. There are the plotting rulers we've seen. Then there was the adoring woman that we saw before our, our marriage and family conference. And then today we're looking at the, the betraying brother. And that's in quotes for obvious reasons. And then there's the dense disciples. Actually, the betraying brother and the dense disciples merge together, as you're going to see this morning. And then there's predictable Peter and then ultimately, the main character in all the Bible, including in this 
in this section is, is God. There's a sovereign designer and you can see how God orchestrates everything all through all of these five characters that are introduced. And we started with Jesus' enemies, that's the plotting rulers. We, we moved to a friend and now we're back to an enemy again. And that enemy is Judas. John MacArthur said the sin of Judas has no equal. Because there's no equal to betraying the Son of God. The closest would probably be Adam. Did you ever think about that? Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. He had fellowship with Him. God fed him. He provided for his every need. And then Adam willingly betrayed him. Eve was deceived. Eve typically gets a bad rap, and rightfully so. But I think Adam gets a worse rap in the Bible. Eve was deceived, and Adam ate the fruit voluntarily after God did all of those things for him. And for three years, Jesus has done the same thing for Judas. He chose him as a disciple, which was a special honor. He fed him, he taught him with the words of God. He'd given him special insight as a disciple when everyone else had rejected. And Jesus spoke only to parables to the crowds. He then takes the disciples aside and explains specifically what he means by the parables. He'd even given Judas an honored task. He was the keeper of the bag. He was the the CFO of the organization. He was the treasurer. That's an honored position. That's a position that requires integrity. And the Lord had given him that position. And Judas had spent 24 hours, seven days a week, looking full on the face of his Creator. And he'd been privy to things that we can only imagine in in our mind, uh, gifted by the Spirit. And then he betrayed him for a very small amount of money. Matthew twenty six fifteen says, Judas betrayed the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver, a few months' salary, the price of a slave. And in the end, you know, he kills himself or his conscience is, is, is eaten up with guilt. Now, there's several lessons as you, as we walk through the betrayal that that I want to just tell you up front to be looking for. First of all, there is a lesson about proximity when Jesus, when, when Judas makes the agreement. And you're going to see that in verses 10 and 11. There's a, there's a, a lesson about proximity. This is not the outline. I'm going to give it to you in a minute. I'm just telling you the application. Here's the, here are the lessons. There's a lesson about proximity. Mark wants to emphasize the proximity of Judas to Jesus in the agreement. Then there's a lesson about God's awareness in the arrangement of the Passover. When He sends His disciples to arrange for the Passover, it's all about God's awareness. And the last lesson is about a mercy, the mercy of a rebuke. When Jesus informs the disciples, He knows about the, the plot. Proximity, awareness, and then mercy from a rebuke. And here is how all of that lays out. The betraying brother is described in three acts. There's the agreement of betrayal in verses 10 and 11. There's the arrangement for Passover in verses 12 through 16. And then there's that moment before the Passover meal, the actual giving and the receiving of the bread and the cup, which we'll see next Sunday, Lord willing, when Jesus announces that He is aware. He is aware of the traitor in verses 17 through 21. Look, if you would, at verse 10. There's the 
agreement of betrayal. It says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Now, when you, when you see all of this together and you, you recognize the flow, there's an emphasis here. Jesus has just declared that, that, uh, that Mary's sacrificial worship will, will always be remembered. Everywhere the gospel is preached, Mary's sacrificial worship will be remembered. And now Judas will be remembered for his agreement of betrayal. And there's a flow to these two verses that I want you to see. It'll help you understand what the emphasis is. He had been with him. He was one of the twelve. Then he went to them. That's to the, to the, the chief priests. And then he sought to betray him. He began seeking how he might betray him. It's a flow. He'd been with them. He goes out and goes to the, to the chief priests. And then he comes back and he seeks. And there's a progression, and it also ties up some loose ends. Verse 10 and 11 ties some loose ends from verses 1 and 2. We already saw, look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 14. It says, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. And they were saying, not during the festival. We've got a problem. Not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot amongst the people. And so, verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11 complete each other. We'll see in a minute. What do you think is the saddest part of those two verses, verses 10 and 11? That he went to them, to his enemies? That he began seeking to betray him? I think that the saddest part is actually found in verse 10. Judas Iscariot, who was... One of the twelve. I think that's the, the, the saddest words. Those are the saddest words in that verse. He was one of the twelve. He'd been with him. It's grieving that Judas went to God's enemies to offer his services. It's breathtaking that, that he actively looks for a way. I mean, he, he rather than paying attention to Jesus, he actually, actively looks for a way to betray Jesus. But what makes both of those so disturbing is that he was one of the twelve. Mark puts a modifier in the text to describe Judas. He was Judas Iscariot, meaning he was a man of Kirioth. He was the only disciple that wasn't from Galilee. But he adds another modifier. Do you see it there? Judas Iscariot, modifier one, second one, who was one of the twelve. It's an explanation. He was one of the intimate disciples of Jesus. You expect the scribes and the Pharisees to seek to kill the Lord. We saw that all the way back in Galilee. I mean, we've been tracking along. There's this opposition building. But you don't anticipate a friend to do that. And yet, that's exactly what you have. Judas is a man who is in close proximity to Christ. And yet, he's the one who ultimately betrays him. He's in close proximity to Jesus for three years. Daily hearing. And here's the point. None of it took. Absolutely none of it penetrated his heart. 
For three years, he's sitting under the preaching. For three years, he's observing the miracles. For three years, he's looking into the compassionate face of Christ, and none of it took. Did you know there are church people like that? They spend their entire lives in church, and none of it takes. They were brought to Sunday school as kids. They, they come Sunday after Sunday. They may even learn the Bible. They may even win Awana Awards. They have their name listed as not one of the twelve, but one of the members of Timberlake Baptist Church. And they're just like Judas. Unregenerate and no spiritual life. They're that close to the words of eternal life and yet that far away from heaven. I heard it say it was a horrible thing to go to hell. But it's a grieving thing to go to hell from a church pew. And it's possible. Listen, don't mistake proximity to things, the things of Jesus, with possessing Jesus. Proximity is not possession. You can get really close to the things of God. You can look all through the Old Testament. And you can get really close to the things of God and not possess the things of God. Don't mistake familiarity with following. Don't mistake familiarity with Jesus as following Jesus. Familiarity is not, is not following. And appreciation is not application. Don't mistake appreciating the truth as application of the truth. Don't mistake, oh wow, that was an excellent sermon. Wow, that is an amazing passage. Don't, 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 don't confuse appreciating the Bible with applying the Bible. James talks about that very clearly, doesn't he? You be a hearer and not a doer. You can know lots of things about the Bible, but that doesn't mean that you submit to it. And if you're on the other side of that equation, proximity, familiarity, appreciation, and not possessing, following, and applying you're not going to get into heaven. And that's very clear by Judas' actions. He, he went to them. He'd been with them. He was one of the twelve. He had close proximity to Christ. And yet he goes out from them, from the twelve, and he went to them. Now, it's hard to grasp the depth of Judas' betrayal. But I think one of the ways that you can do that is to understand when this happened. You know when this arrangement takes place in the in the Passion Week? Well, the we're told in John's Gospel that the anointing in the passage right before takes place on Saturday. The Saturday before the triumphal entry. So the Saturday before Passion Week. And right after that, Mark says that Judas goes to the chief priests. Judas went to the leaders on Saturday, likely but clearly before the Passion Week takes place. Now think about that date. A week before the actual crucifixion, Judas comes to Jerusalem intending how to betray him. The Bible is silent on, on when he does that. Does he do that while Jesus is in the home of Mary and Martha, just a, a few miles away? Does he walk in in order to set this up? Surely he wouldn't have done it whenever he could be seen. And the Bible says that even before the crucifixion, Judas comes to Jerusalem intending on betraying Jesus. And what he's looking for from then on is how to do it. 
Judas has been plotting to betray the Lord for some time. He didn't just come up with that in the middle of the week. Judas didn't get into the middle of Jerusalem in the middle of the Passion Week and, and freak out and think that this thing's not going to go the way that the Lord said, so I better have, come up with a plan B. This was plan A when he comes in to Jerusalem. Look, if you would, at verse 11. And it says, They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he, that's Judas, began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Judas agrees to betray him and do it apart from the crowd, and this solves the leader's problems. The problem that they had in verses 1 and 2 is they wanted to do it apart from the crowd. Being separate from Judas, the chief priests and the leaders were intent on killing him. And verses 10 and 11 show how those two intentions come together. Intentions come together. They made a partnership of evil. It was fueled by the devil. In Mark 4, 1, the problem is presented by the leaders. In verses 10 and 11, we're now told the solution that's been underway for some time that's provided by Judas. The problem, how they might seize him in stealth. The solution... How Judas might betray him unto them. The problem, they feared the riot of the people. The solution, he would betray him at an opportune time. That's a time away from the people. And he finally figures that opportune time after the Passover meal on the, on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is what he is, what he's seeking from then on. Now he's seeking. He sought to betray him. And verse 11 says it wasn't just the moment of betrayal. It wasn't just a moment of betrayal. It was a period of seeking. You don't fall into unbelief like, oops, you've been nursing it for a period of time. And that's what you see here with Judas. Can you imagine? Now think about this. Transport yourself back. Judas comes into the Passion Week with the plot already hatched. He helps place the Lord on the colt from Zechariah 9.9 at the top, the crest of the Mount of Olives, wondering, will I be able to find a moment today to be able to betray Him in private? He's observing the Lord of glory turning over the corrupt tables plotting to turn him over to the very rulers that are ruling the den of thieves. He's listening to Jesus and the confrontation and the piercing answers that he gets, putting everyone to silence, and none of it pierces Judas's heart. And then when the opportunity presents itself, he acts, he seals it with the kiss of friendship. And yet the Bible says it was all part of God's plan, wasn't it? Psalm 41.9 says the Messiah would be betrayed by a close friend. Even my unfamiliar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Zechariah even gives the very amount that he'll be betrayed. Thirty pieces of silver. Zechariah 11.12, then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages. And if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces 
of silver. Jesus knew Judas would betray him. Now think about Judas coming to the, to the triumphal entry. Hearing the crowds cry Hosanna as Jesus is riding in, intentionally presenting himself as the Messiah. And think about the Lord Jesus Christ knowing that one of his disciples is plotting the whole time in order to betray him. Judas, Jesus knew Judas would betray him, and yet he chose him anyway as part of God's plan. Look at John chapter 6. Well, this is definitive, isn't it? Jesus answered and said, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him being one of the twelve. There's proximity, proximity, proximity. But the Lord's the one that chose Judas. I can remember an old preacher telling me one time, whenever you go to church, don't expect it to be perfect. Jesus chose twelve disciples and one of them was of the devil. You're not going to have any better odds than the Lord. And Jesus is fully aware. God is fully aware. He's fully aware of plotting. He's fully aware of seeking. He's fully aware of you. And he's fully aware of Judas. And you can see that in in this second scene. There's the arrangement for Passover. Judas seeking an opportune time. And Mark says in verse 12, On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat Passover? There are three movements in this scene as well. Three moves, I should say. That will help you get the flow from verse 12 through verse 16. The disciples ask, where, where do you want us to eat Passover? This is all about the arrangement of Passover. There's an agreement of betrayal, and now there's an arrangement for the Passover. The disciples ask, where? Where do you want us to prepare? And Jesus doesn't answer. He says, go and you will find. And then the disciples find it just as Jesus said. That, that's kind of the flow of this, of this narrative. It's telling the story. Mark's telling the story. The disciples want to know where. Jesus says, go and you'll find. The disciples find it exactly as the Lord said. The Passover, what Jesus is talking about here, this this feast, was a banquet. It was like a celebration. It had evolved from a meal eaten in haste to a festive meal where people gathered together and they they had fellowship and it lasted through the evening and and it took some time to prepare. I mean, think of like Thanksgiving dinner, if you will. Obviously different connotations, but... Think of all the preparation that you do, your wife does, or whoever, grandma does, in order to get it ready. Today it's changed even more. There's, there's no place to sacrifice the lamb, so a leg shank is typically used to symbolize the whole animal. To this day, some, they're, they're ultra-Orthodox Jews who still carry a lamb to the temple. And just to be turned away by the Israeli authorities fear in fear of Muslim retaliation, and they go back and they still celebrate Passover. 
And Luke tells us that the two men that Jesus sends are Peter and John, and they're sent to get the lamb ready. There's a subtle contrast there. Satan sends Judas, his disciple, to prepare to betray the Lord, and Jesus sends two of his best disciples to prepare the meal that depicts his death. And he only sends two because only two men could bring the Passover lamb to the temple to be slain during a a two-hour period. That reduced the the crowding of the temple. So you can't go as the whole family. There are only two people who can come and bring the lamb in order for the lamb to be sacrificed. And it was in the morning, and they have a lot to do. So they want to get after it. And Jesus hasn't told them where or anything. And so they had secured the lamb earlier in the week, no doubt. More likely they had to go get it. We're not told where it was. Quite possibly it was at Martha's house, which was a short distance away. The feast had six elements to it. The lamb, the unleavened bread, the wine, the bitter herbs, the caroseth, which was the sauce, and then the salt water. They had to gather all of that. They had to go purchase the unleavened bread, the wine for the four different cups, and the bitter herbs as well. The sweet dip that they had to make, the sauce, had several ingredients. It was made out of pomegranate and apple and dates, and all of that was crushed and blended together with nuts into this brown-looking paste that was very sweet. It symbolized the mud that they used to make bricks in Egypt, and then cinnamon sticks were placed to represent the straw. And they would dip the bitter herbs and a piece of unleavened bread into the sweet fruit mixture, and that symbolized the bitterness of bondage of Egypt and the sweetness of deliverance that God brought. All this symbolism. The salt water was placed in a bowl at the table to remind them of the tears they shed while they were slaves, and the salt water of the Red Sea through which God delivered them. And all this has to be prepared, and this all has to be done before 3 o'clock. The priest has to slaughter the lamb, sprinkle the blood, take some of the meat, and then they had to roast it, and then it had to be ready for the evening meal. There's a lot of work to do, and they don't even know where they're going to do it. They don't even have, they don't even have a room secured. And Jesus hasn't told them where it was, so they ask... In verse 12, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? They're good Jews. This is what they're supposed to do. But look at how Jesus answers them in verse 13. And he said to them, and he sent two disciples and said to them, Go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And whenever he, wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, not the man carrying the pitcher of water, but the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, prepare for us there. Did Jesus answer? Well, sort of. They want to say where. They say where. And Jesus gives an intricate map of circumstances so they could find an unknown location. And this is like, where's Waldo? Where's the Passover room? Did you ever think about why Jesus didn't say, you know, go to Joseph's house on the south corner and say, we're here to prepare for the room? I mean, he has disciples in in Jerusalem. Do you think that Peter and John didn't know Jerusalem? Of course they know Jerusalem. 
Better yet, if Passover is so time-consuming and everything else is divinely planned, including the betrayal of Judas, why is this seemingly unarranged? The morning of Passover. It's because it's seemingly unarranged. It's already been perfectly arranged. The Lord knew He was to eat the Passover, but His disciples didn't know where. The room for Passover would have been hard to come by. It's packed. Remember, there's a couple million people in Jerusalem. This wasn't a mistake. It was part of the plan. He describes it very vividly in verse 13. You'll enter the city and you'll meet a man, a tall, dark stranger, right? Carrying a pitcher of water. I know you've heard it before. Men don't normally carry pitchers of water. It wasn't that they didn't carry water. They didn't carry pitchers. They carried it in a skin. You'll follow this man, and whatever house that man enters in, don't talk to that man, talk to the, the master of the house and say, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? He doesn't name the man. He doesn't tell where the house is. There's nothing other than the details. It's ambiguous as far as the place but precise in what they'll see when they get there so that Peter and John can find it. Why did he do that? Well, verses 10 and 11 has already told us. Because Judas is seeking an opportune time to betray him. All of that was for Judas's sake. He's right there with the twelve, listening. He's with the Lord. And Judas was seeking a good opportunity to betray him. Apart from the crowds, don't you think the Passover room, with all of them gathered in one place, would have been a perfect opportunity to do that? Probably right after it took place. I don't know whether they would have done it in the middle of Passover. They would all be in one room alone and the Jewish leaders could capture all of them at once whenever they came out. And Jesus knew what Judas had done and what he was looking to do. And now Judas is stuck. He probably wanted to volunteer to go find the house. But he had to stay with the Lord since Peter and John were sent to prepare, and Judas doesn't know where the supper will be held. None of the disciples did until they got there, but Jesus did. He's in absolute control. There's an amazing prophetic statement here that you may have overlooked. Look if you would at verse 14. He enters, whatever, wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, watch this, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And watch verse 15. And he himself will show you a large upper room. You see, it's different even in the English, isn't it? Jesus says, when you enter the house, say to the owner, the teacher says to you, where is the kataluma? Where is the guest chamber which I may eat Passover? And he'll show you a large upper room. They're two different words. Jesus asked for the guest chamber, which was the common chamber or hall on the lower floor. It's where all the animals unloaded their burden. And yet the owner gives him a large upper room. The room that Jesus asked for, the word, is only used one other time in the New Testament, and that is in Luke 2, 7. Luke 2. What do you read every Christmas? Luke 2, 7, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the kataluma, in the inn. 
There was no room for him in the inn when he came to be born, and there will be no room for him in the inn in his last supper. But I want you to see that Jesus knows both. Think about this. You're going to ask for this room, and he's going to give you another room. And that's exactly what he does. Jesus pronounces ahead of time. Showing divine omniscience. It's the capstone on divine omniscience. You're going to go and you're going to see a man. Jesus doesn't see the man. He can't see the man. You're going to find him. He's going to be carrying this. He's going to lead you. You're going to go in. You're going to ask for this. The owner's going to give you that. You're going to go. You're going to find the room exactly as I have told you. He's aware of everything. God's omniscience is comprehensive. There's not a single thing that he does not know. He's not wondering what's going to happen so he can plan for it. He declares the end from the beginning. Look at verse 16. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. The disciples find it just as he said. He's aware of the plot of Judas. Any plans for that? He's aware of this man's house. He's aware that he's going to ask for the inn and he's going to give him the upper room. He's aware of what the man would offer. And he's aware of you this morning. He is. Now let me ask you something. If the Lord was that aware of such intricate detail about the preparation of the Passover meal, do you really think He doesn't know you this morning? Do you really think, if you're a believer, that He does not know the very needs of your heart? You better believe He does. And if you don't know Him this morning, do you think that He's not aware of you? That's both comforting and terrifying. I thought of the time whenever the disciples were in the middle of the sea and Jesus speaks to the sea and it goes like glass. They're petrified at the waves about perishing. And then it says they were greatly afraid whenever they realized that Jesus was in the boat. They were petrified about the storm and they were really scared when they figured out God was in the boat. The omniscience of Jesus, that Jesus knows your every need, is comforting. The fact that Jesus knows everything is also terrifying. If you're His child, He knows your every step, perceives your every thought, and He's already met your greatest need. But if you are His enemy, still His enemy, He's aware of you. You're not hiding from the Lord. His eyes see you. He sees what you do whenever no one else does. And you're going to meet Him in judgment if you don't repent. He sees even Judas. And while all of that's true, He's also the God of mercy. This last scene. There's the awareness of the traitor. Look at verse 17. They find the room. They prepare for the Passover. And when it was evening, they came with the twelve. Notice all twelve of them are there. Proximity. And they were reclining at the table and eating. And Jesus says some chilling words. 
We've seen proximity, we've seen awareness, and now here's the mercy of rebuke. Hear the words of the Lord. Truly I say to you, one of you, one of the twelve, will betray me. One who is eating with me. And they began to be grieved and say to him one by one, Surely not I. Is it I? Is it me? You ever done that? You read a passage of Scripture that talks about your potential. Like I, you, uh, you read the, the possibility of a believer. You're a believer in the possibility of sinning. And you say, surely I don't want to do that. I don't ever want to, I don't ever want to fall in that way. I think that's what the, 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 the genuine disciples are saying. Lord, are you, are you telling me something that's going to take place that, that you know that I don't know? Surely it's not me. I don't want it to be me. And then there's Judas. Can you imagine what Judas is thinking in that moment? You ever caught your child red-handed? The look on their face. He's been plotting all week and... He can't find a way. Even now he's stuck in the upper room, probably thinking, how can I slip away while they're all in one room? And Jesus says, I know. I know. I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. I know you've been plotting all week. I knew whenever we were on the Mount of Olives and you cried Hosanna with the rest of them, I knew your heart was far from me. I knew... Even whenever I was preaching the gospel and teaching, I knew that at that moment you were thinking, well, this would be a good opportunity and it never happened for you. I knew. I know now. I would guess the blood probably drained out of his heart. It wouldn't mind. But Jesus doesn't just say he knows. Look at what else he says. He doesn't, says he doesn't just leave it there. And they began to be grieved. And look at verse 20. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. This is not to the crowd. This is to the twelve. It's to a distinct group. And Jesus doesn't just leave it with, I know. He offers a rebuke, which is mercy. And He does it one last time. The Son of Man goes, as it is written of Him in verse 21, but woe to that man by whom He is betrayed. Now, we often struggle with the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, and people get in great arguments over that, and they get twisted up around the spokes. And they do that because it, the, there's the thought that they oppose one another. But here they are in the same sentence. Do you see that? The Son of Man goes as it has been written. Sovereignty. But woe to that man who betrays him. Responsibility. You see it? MacArthur said this is one of the strongest statements in the Bible on human responsibility for believing in Jesus Christ coupled with the consequences for their unbelief. 
the two don't contradict. They complement one another. And you say, how can that be? You're asking me? I don't know. I don't know any more than you do. I don't know how God does that. But what I do know is the Bible teaches both. And I'm happy to relent to the fact that God understands some things that I don't. But who does Jesus say this for? Well, of course, I think there's a, there's a general warning to, to anyone here this morning. You're hearing this message. You're not in sin. You're not hiding anything. You're walking with the Lord. You hear this message. You go, wow, I, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. So, I mean, there's a, there's a general benefit, I think, to the other 11 disciples. But who does Jesus say this for? Well, the answer is right there in the text. Look at verse 21. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. He had not been born. It's specific. It's for Judas. All of the other disciples asked the question, of themselves, could it be me? And Judas knows it's him. But he hasn't betrayed him yet. He's made the arrangements. Oh, that's horrible sin, treachery. He's loaded the gun, but he hasn't pulled the trigger. And even after being aware he's not a true disciple, even knowing he's been pilfering the bag, even knowing he's already gone to his enemies even being aware of him seeking an opportune time to betray him, Jesus offers mercy to Judas one more time in rebuke. He says, I know, and this will not go well for you, but you can still repent. You know, people say you'd be better off dead, right? You heard that before? You'd be better off dead. Jesus says, no, if you're going to hell, you'd be better off never been born, he says. Because it's a never, ever, 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 ever ending period of time. Really short time here. Really short time here to follow Christ. Really short time here to live it up. And then eternity. And if you reject Jesus Christ, it would have been better if you never entered. You never were ever born, Jesus says. And the warning of woe, woe to that man, Judas, but that warning extends to anyone who rejects Jesus Christ. It would have been better for you to have never been born than to have been born and never come to Jesus Christ. And you may have been in close proximity to the truth, You may have forgotten that God was aware of your every move and your every thought and your every deed. And yet He is saying, I've gone to the cross as the Son of Man, just as it was written, and it will be woe for you if you reject Me. But you can still repent. You must repent. Or else you'll face judgment. What? A horrible tragedy. And yet even in this tragedy, what great mercy that God extends. And we'll see the rest of the story whenever we come back.
next week. Would you bow your heads?